Good morning. As uh, Scott was telling the, the children's message for the children, I was reminded again, a friend of mine, when they found out I was preaching on Elijah this morning, sent me a meme. If you don't know what a meme is, ask a younger person in the congregation. But it, it was just something along the lines of, when things were really bad for Elijah, he went under a tree, he had a nap, he had a snack, and then he could get going again. So never underestimate the value of a nap and a snack. So that's not really what I'm going to be getting at today, but I thought it was a, a cute little thing, and, and they had sent me at a good time for me to hear that too. So as I've grown up in the church, listening to a lot of different sermons, and as I've studied different forms of sermons and listened to classmates over the last couple of years practice different forms, I've always wrestled with when a pastor should be vulnerable and when that's not best. In the churches I've grown up in, um, usually the sermons have been very based on scripture and some outside examples, and not very often on the pastor's own personal experience or where they were at emotionally. And I don't know what your tradition has been like in the churches you have been part of or even what it's been like at Rockway. Um, but part of the reason I'm here this summer is to try different things and to learn how different sermons and ways of speaking work and feel. And so I think I'll start with a little vulnerability then today. Today's topic is one that I have wrestled a lot with personally. And the last while especially, I've been forced more and more to look at some of my own beliefs and reactions and process some of the ways I handle things, including my own relationship with God. So today's message comes out of a place of wrestling, and I think that's okay. And really, I don't know that that is too different for any of us when we hear scripture or read it um, or listen to sermons. We are all forced to look at things from time to time in our lives, forced to contemplate our own understandings with God and of God. So while I know what the Bible says, I wrestle with, that, with what that looks like in my own everyday reality. And today's message has put some of that in the forefront again for me. So that being said, I want to take a look at these three passages that Scott read. I know some of them were a bit longer, and I even cut out sections of them. Um, but I think what is said there is important, and we can learn or hope to learn about God in the process. So I want to start with the passage from Elijah, which Scott uh, reenacted a little, although I think the broom tree looks a little different, uh, reenacted a little with the children. Um, in what we read, Elijah's actions seem very normal and pretty appropriate. His life was threatened by Jezebel. He was afraid, and he ran away so that he could save his life. That's probably the approach I would take, too, if someone was threatening my life. However, the chapters that we didn't read before this incident are important in setting the scene. When we first meet Elijah, He's also in the desert or in the wilderness another time. And this time, God had sent ravens to feed him and had sent water to give him something to drink. Later, Elijah goes to the house of a widow where God caused food and oil to not run out for the whole time he was there. And then while he was there, the widow's son died and God, in front of both of them, raised that son back to life. Then Elijah, in front of the king and all the prophets of Baal, called down fire from heaven and God showed up in a big way once again. The point is, Elijah's whole life, God kept showing up time and time again, and not in small ways. And now Jezebel simply says she's going to kill him, and suddenly Elijah gives up everything, and he runs away. And we don't know really what else was going on in Elijah's life. 
Maybe he was all tired after all the excitement that just happened with the prophets of Baal. Maybe he needed a break. Maybe there was other stuff going on in his life. All we know is what we read here, that Elijah was afraid. He left Israel and went to Judah, which means he was out of Jezebel's territory. But then he left Judah and went into the wilderness. And I wonder at the symbolism of him leaving the land of the covenant people. Some people I've talked to said this is symbolic of him leaving behind God, in a sense. The, the land that God had provided, and now he's going out into the wilderness. And I've also read and, and heard the one little line that Scott read about how he left his servant there, too. Some people think that's symbolic of him leaving his ministry, in a sort, of once you start getting rid of employees, you're, you're kind of saying, hey, I, I might be done with this. Was he trying to run away from God? even after all he had seen and witnessed with his own eyes. Either way, he runs away and walks a day into the wilderness without food or water, not a smart idea, and sits under a tree. And that's not the, usually the image we have of a prophet of God. Sitting under the only tree around, no food, no water, no hope, no one by his side, actually asking God to take his life. And then he lays down and goes to sleep. But even though Elijah seems to have forgotten God and given up on him, it's obvious that God has not done the same. God sends an angel twice to give Elijah the food that is necessary for the journey ahead of him. I always think if an angel appeared and gave me a bunch of bread and water, I probably wouldn't just go back to sleep again. I think there would be some conversations I wanted to have, something like that. But Elijah doesn't. He goes back to sleep and, and waits again. God even lets him know that even with this food, the journey won't be too difficult. Once he's fed, God doesn't just tell him it's all going to be okay, though. He doesn't just pick him up and brush him off and fix everything. In fact, in what Scott read, it almost seems like it gets harder. God sends him on a journey through the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, symbolic of the years the Israelites also spent wandering in the desert, waiting for God's timing. And God still wasn't finished with Elijah. At Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, God meets with Elijah. And a lot of sermons have been preached on the presence of God and that still small voice or that small murmur or that silence. But that's not the focus today. The focus is just that God met with Elijah. And God listened to him as he moaned and complained about Jezebel. And how could this ever happen after all the things that he had done for God? And God did listen. But God didn't just give him the easy way out. God actually gives him more to do, challenges him with more. And then God, after all that, sends him back through the wilderness again. And it's interesting because chapters later, God takes up Elijah in a whirlwind. He could have done that here too. He could have been like, we met, this is good. Now I'm just gonna get you back over there so you can continue your ministry. But God sends him back through the wilderness. I'm sure that was a lot of time to think and process what had just happened. But let's leave Elijah there for a moment and take a look at the passage in Luke. We skipped a lot of the first bit of it, but I'm sure it's a familiar passage that Jesus had come to an area where there was a man possessed by evil spirits, and he was in the tombs, that's where he was living, he didn't have clothes, he broke his chains, and when he arrived, the evil spirits recognized Jesus, and then Jesus healed the man. What's interesting in this passage is the fact that Jesus' presence does not end up calming the situation. 
In fact, Jesus showing up seems to escalate things. If you remember this story, the demons go from the man into a herd of pigs who run down an embankment, and there was about 2,000 of them, and all the pigs die. That's not actually a scene of calm and nice. A lot of places in the scripture, Jesus shows up and, and good, calm things happen. He raises people from the dead, and it seems almost normal. He calmly does something incredible. People are in awe, and things just go back to a normal way of life. A dead child embraces their parents again. The wedding guests drink the wine. The lame man just picks up his mat and goes. And I think that's the Jesus that is comfortable, the God who is predictable and almost manageable. The God who goes about doing wonders, we reap the benefits and life just gets a bit better. We say thank you, pick up our mat, and carry on our way. But this passage doesn't give that feeling. Jesus grants the demands of the evil spirits, which is interesting in itself, and sends them into a herd of pigs. This was a significant economic loss that happened. And of course people were going to hear about it. And they do. They tell everyone else what had happened. The focus very quickly becomes on the chaos. And it seems that the miracle itself is almost forgotten. The people are fearful. They don't want a Jesus who causes chaos. They don't want a Jesus around who could represent or cause substantial loss or unpredictability. Like Elijah, the people just can't deal with the stress or danger that this causes, and so they seem to give up. Never mind the amazing things that God has done in their midst. They don't want that around them. They go out of their way to beg Jesus to not let that happen again. They ask him to leave them in peace. Except one person the man who had lived in a different chaos for so long. I can't imagine what that was like for him. And this new chaos looked very different for him. He realized that what Jesus had done was more important than the new chaos that was around. And while all the people acted in fear, this man came to Jesus asking to be able to follow him. On one hand, I think that was very noble of him. I can respect that reaction. Not all the people who were healed by Jesus wanted to stick around. But part of, and so this guy can be commended for that. But part of me also wonders if it was a little selfish or out of fear that he wanted to stick around. If I had been possessed by evil spirits for the majority of my life, I would also want to stick around the person who had finally healed me of that. If they came back again, I would be glad that I was nearby him. But even in that self-preservation, that shows a bit of trust. This man also knows that the whole village was angry and fearful partly because of him. And he played a pretty large role in that, and I'm sure at least some of the town wished the miracle hadn't happened at all, and that they just had this one man to deal with instead of 2,000 pigs that were suddenly lost. And I'm guessing following Jesus looked a little better than the alternative of going back into town to face these people. But, like with Elijah, Jesus did not let this man take that route. While I'm sure that Jesus was honored that this man wanted to follow him and be his disciple, Jesus had other plans for him, maybe even harder plans for him, but a different direction for this man to head, one that furthered the kingdom. So Jesus asked this man to do something different, not the plans that the man had, not exactly what he wanted, but Jesus had prepared him for it. And like with Elijah, God met with him in an unexpected way, Jesus had done some things that the people were not comfortable with, but this man experienced his presence and now was asked by Jesus to go do something about it.
We'll get back to those two stories, but we also read Psalm 23, a psalm I've heard a lot, and I imagine many of you have heard it even more times than I have. It's a psalm of comfort for a lot of people, one that's read at funerals, one that's read in hospital rooms. It's comforting, but also a little bit troubling. The first part of the Psalm 23 has always painted a very beautiful picture for me. I love the image of probably the flanograph from back when I was a kid of the nice fluffy white sheep and the green field and a beautiful pond. And it's a beautiful picture. But this image changed for me in a big way when I got to go to Israel a few years ago. Our tour guide, um, who's also a biblical studies professor, George, talked about those still waters in a very different way. And you can take it or leave it. There's a lot of different interpretations of a lot of different scripture. But what George taught us has stuck with me for a really long time. And I see it pop up again in the Elijah passage and the passage in Luke. George took us out to the desert and showed us firsthand the lack of green pasture and a real lack of water. Here in Canada, when we think of raising sheep, we get a very different picture than the people did back in the time of the psalmist. They didn't have nice lakes and streams. They had harsh conditions and minimal water. And George then took us to a ravine called a wadi. And a wadi is a result of flash floods of rushing water making its way to the Dead Sea, the lowest point in the area. And that's natural for water. It's going to flow to wherever the lowest point is. George also explained to us that one of the most common ways to die in that area of the desert was, in fact, by drowning. In fact, a couple of weeks earlier in that very same wadi, a group of climbers had lost their lives when a flash flood came through. But there we were, in the middle of the desert, not really understanding that portion. You see, the rain would come down in the mountains, which were many, many kilometers away, and then it would gather, it would form streams, it would rush downhill, and sometimes several days later, that same water that had fallen before suddenly rushed through these areas with no warning. If you weren't prepared for this and found yourself in the wadi at that time, you could lose your life. But because the water came through here, it was also a place in the desert where small pools were left behind, pools of still waters. Pools that were very enticing for a shepherd who needed to get the sheep something to drink. But this was also risky because the whole herd could be lost in an instant. But if the shepherd knew something about the rain in the mountains, if the shepherd knew when the danger was coming, the shepherd could take his sheep to this water. Psalm 23 paints a picture of a shepherd who knows how to take care of the sheep, us. It paints a picture of a God who can lead us to still waters, even if these waters can be and feel like dangerous, uncertain places. A shepherd who knows the danger, who knows our fears, but also knows exactly what we need and is prepared to take us to the places we need to go to get it. The psalm says it restores our souls. And the sheep can follow because the shepherd knows. But that doesn't change that the waters are still uncomfortable places. Likewise, in Psalm 23, there's a picture of a great feast, a big table being prepared, overflowing cups, and heads being anointed with oil. The meal sounds kind of great, maybe like a Mennonite potluck that I've experienced here. But maybe Psalm 23 goes on and has to wreck it by saying it's prepared in the presence of enemies. I don't know about you, but that kind of ruins a big feast for me if I know that I have to look over my shoulder the whole time that I'm enjoying it. I don't want to have all kinds of food that I just can't eat in comfort. 
I also don't want to walk through a valley that feels anything like death. That's not the kind of places I want to be. But at that table, it's God preparing the feast. And that means I have to think about it. Am I able to walk in the valley? Am I able to sit down for the meal or drink from pools of water if I know who's in control? Am I willing to find and see God in those unexpected places? Ready for God to be able to do unexpected things? The psalmist seems pretty certain that good things will come of it. He even says that in spite of all of these things, goodness and mercy will somehow follow all the days of life, and eventually they'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There are some things happening in all of these passages that sound pretty incredible. And they can even sound somewhat comforting, kind of. But as I mentioned at the beginning, these verses can also be hard to read. For me, even as I have read them through many times, read different commentaries and thought about what they were saying, I've had to wrestle with them. I often can find myself in a space where I can't hear or recognize that still small voice of God very clearly just yet. I know I don't always feel like I've been given bread from an angel that gives me strength for any sort of physical or emotional journey just yet, let alone one of 40 days through a wilderness. And I don't always feel like I'm sitting down for a feast or drinking from still waters. And that can be hard too. I think I've often felt like I'm maybe the guy sitting under the broom tree at times, waiting. I think I've been looking over my shoulder for the flash flood or for my enemies or for fear of the chaos around me and what the rest of the village is going to think. And I imagine all of us can find ourselves to certain extents in the different places in these passages. Maybe some of you are in the same position I often find myself. Maybe you also experience the unrest, the fears, the unsettledness, the potential dangers, or just the tiredness of current situations. Maybe there's the same frustration as Elijah, as he thought he was doing everything he could for God, and that just didn't get him to the place he wanted to be. Maybe some of you have felt the hand of God in some unexpected ways already. But even though you've seen those things, it doesn't feel like the bread is going to be enough for all 40 days and 40 nights. Maybe the silence in which you first heard God is starting to feel a little too silent. And maybe you're looking over your shoulder. Or maybe you are able to look back on these times and realize that God has sustained you. The bread did last. The floods didn't consume you. Your enemies didn't have the last word, and you were able to go into the streets and proclaim what Jesus had done for you. I think one of the beautiful things about community is we find different people in all of those places. And wherever we are, I think these chapters hold valuable reminders and comforts for us. Our God does provide help for the road. It doesn't make the road straighter always. It doesn't make the sun less hot or the valley less dark or scary. It doesn't mean there's no enemies in sight. It doesn't mean everyone else around us always accepts everything. But God promises to provide, to give us nourishment, to be by our side, and it doesn't always come in the ways that we expect or want. In each passage today, we see difficult places to be. We see God meeting his children in those places. But we also see the children need to respond. Elijah was in this tough spot, as we have seen, and God first asked him to walk through the desert for 40 days, and Elijah did it. And then God told him to walk back the same way, and he did it. And Elijah did all of this, and a whole people were blessed by God through him. 
The psalmist followed the shepherd to still waters, walked through the hard valley, and sat at the table in the presence of his enemies. The psalmist trusted God in those places and ends up praising God for being able to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the demon-possessed man did not argue with Jesus for the easier option, but went to the difficult places and spread the news of the kingdom among the people. Unexpected meetings, unexpected callings, but God still kept his covenant. And I want to trust that even in the places God has called me and us, he is by our side. I want to trust his timing and his provision. I want to believe that for all of us. Our God is a faithful God. He showed that time and time again in scripture and clearly in a lot of our lives over and over. And I know that doesn't always make things easy. 40 days can seem like a long time. Even a drink of water that's nourishing for a soul at a dangerous pond can still feel like a really long time. But God doesn't leave us, promises to be by our side. Our God will keep showing up. There's a lot of back and forth, a lot of moments of trust and moments of fear, but ultimately our shepherd is preparing us, protecting us, and providing for us on the roads we walk. In the end, we serve a God who doesn't promise to help us avoid all the dangers, but promises to meet us in the unexpected. And the chapters today show us comfort in uncomfortable places. And we see how those individuals have chosen to respond. And the question for me right now, the question probably for all of us, is are we willing to trust God to help us on those roads? Are we willing to meet him also in the uncomfortable and unexpected? And then how will we respond to the places that God brings us?